Well, welcome everyone to the Bamboo Lab podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brian Bosley. And for the better part of the past quarter century as a performance consultant and speaker, I've had the most amazing journey and opportunity to work around and alongside of some of the world's top performers. And what we're doing here each week is we're bringing those ideas and strategies directly to you, to your home, to your car, to your office, and to your headset. You ever feel at times that you're underachieving in life and you just know that you have so much more to give deep down to yourself, to your loved ones, and to the world? Do you feel that you're that hamster stuck on the wheel and you're spinning and you're spinning, but you're just not going at the pace or the direction you'd like to? Well, if so, you've landed in the right spot. This is your home. This Bamboo Lab podcast was written, created, and broadcast just for you, all you strivers, thrivers, and survivors out there. Like many have done so far already, if you'd like to learn more about what we do here at the Bamboo Lab, more of our private performance coaching, our group and team culture training, and a professional speaking, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time. My direct email is brian, and that's brian with an I, at bamboolab3, and that's the number 3.com. That's brian at bamboolab3.com. Well, I want to read a letter we got, as all returning listeners know, and some, for some of you new listeners, we have a, an expectation of collecting 10,000 what we call heart letters from our listeners. Letters, cards, emails, texts from individuals that share with them what the Bamboo Lab podcast means to them, what it's done to their heart and to their body and to their mind and soul. This one is simple. This came after the recording in the episode with retired Marine Corps Colonel John Barnett. And the listener just wrote, Simplify, Brian, you certainly have some amazing people in your universe, and I'm so glad our company has been hiring former military because they are purposeful, mission-driven people. That was a great episode. Happy, happy, have a great 4th of July weekend. That came in two weeks ago. So thank you, listener. I appreciate that so very much. Well, this is a special episode, so I'm going to share some statistics as of today, which is July 13th, 2022. We are now being broadcast and listened to and followed in five of the seven continents, 42 states and 20 or 42 states and 21 countries around the world. So we are growing rapidly and I couldn't be happier. This episode is dedicated to not just one individual, but to a collective. This episode is dedicated to all of you children out there, or you adult children who are or were abused or neglected as children. We bring, when we come into this world, we are expected to be able to run between the raindrops, to stay clean, to stay strong. But sometimes we get caught in the rain, someone else's storm. And the abuse can have adverse effects that can last a, a lifetime or sometimes for generations. This is for all of you, an opportunity to, to learn, to stand up, to take control of your life, and to once again run between the raindrops. Let's dissect. Okay, um, I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it this time, and I certainly mean it, like I always do, but I mean it maybe a little more today. I've got a, a, a person on here today that some of you listeners will recognize the name and some of you won't, but I certainly do. Before I introduce him to the world and have him come on, I want to share with you his name and his credentials because they are quite fucking amazing. Sean Raby. 
Sean Ravy is a 15-year law enforcement veteran. He became, a, became an officer, a police officer, age 40. He moved from St. Ignace, Michigan, or moved from Michigan to Arizona after losing his home in Michigan, and he lived in his Jeep for three months while taking on odd jobs and finding an apartment. He served six years as a detective in the Crimes Against Children Unit of the fifth largest city in the country, with more than 1,000 cases worked. And one day while he was working with an abused child, he discovered that this particular child reacted and responded extremely positively when asked about superheroes. And this led to, might, quite frankly, might be his greatest legacy. He, put, he uh, created an organization called Put on the Cape, a Foundation for Hope. And I really want him to expand on that today. And just this year, he became an author for the first time. Rebel Without a Clue is a story about his father, Edward Ravy, who I know as an amazing man. And currently, it's number, the number one best-selling new release on Amazon for the fourth straight week. Now, he's got all kinds of recognitions. Two-time State of the Arizona Police Officer of the Year, Department's Distinguished Service Office Award, City of Phoenix Employee Excellence Award, Marquee Who's Who in America Award. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And his organization, the Put on a Cape, was named a national great nonprofit by the Network for Good. So here we go. Sean, welcome to the Bamboo Lab podcast. It's great to hear from you again, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> you are more than welcome. And I know I said a little cuss word at the beginning, but I don't normally swear in my personal life and seldom on the air, but I'm so excited to have you on, and I'm so excited about the message that you share and the wisdom and experience you're going to bring to the Bamboo Pack audience that the passion just came out of me. So I appreciate that. I, I had to stifle a giggle because I know you. <laughs> but, uh, it was nice. I appreciate that. You drove the swear word out of me, Sean. <laughs> so, you know, if you could now, Sean, will you tell the Bamboo Pack a little bit about yourself, your, your history, your, your childhood growing up, and let the world get to know who you are? Well, I grew up in your hometown, St. Right. Ignace, Michigan. The two of us, uh, lifelong friends, went to school together. Uh, Rode our banana bikes to Sand Bay, I think, every day in the summer. Played Little League. Uh, didn't win a single game one year. Go Cubs. That's okay. <laughs> Go Cubs. Oh, God. We, we were dreadful. We were the bad news uh, bears who never became the good news bears. No, it was uh, – we kept uh, – there was hope there. There was hope. It quickly dashed as soon as the first pitch was thrown. Uh, but, you know, we learn, right? We, that's supposed to be learning experiences for children. And uh, we, we learned that we needed to do better and just continue to grow but uh played sports as did you and went to college grew up uh you know it's just St. Ignace if you've never been it's just one of the most beautiful towns of course living there and seeing that you think everybody has a five mile long bridge in their backyard and can travel across the, the water to an island that doesn't allow cars and it's Victorian history and it's just it's just a, a splendid place to be from and to go back to, but you don't realize that when you're there and <clears throat> went to college uh, shortly thereafter. And, you know, something bizarre happened when I was six. I, I met Paul Svet and you know who that is. I do. And those that don't, Paul was a longtime Michigan state trooper, best friends with my father. And as soon as I met Paul, I realized I wanted to be a police officer someday. And <clears throat> that was my goal since I was a six year old boy. And I also wanted to be a superhero. 
because I grew up loving comic books. You know, Trey Law and I and Chris, we would go to the comic book shop every Wednesday, get the new comics, and just we always had this fascination with superheroes. And I, I tell people now, you know, now that I'm 55 years of age, <clears throat> just if you wish it hard enough and and keep striving toward it, you you can be those things. You don't put a time limit on life because life will tell you when you're ready and when you're not. And um, so went through school, became a journalist instead of a police officer, um, had some meaningful jobs, some, you know, life, got married, got divorced, um, came a time in 2006 when the economy was horrible in Michigan, especially, it was so bad. And I, I had a mortgage company at the time and we lost everything. And I had to move back in with my dad when I was 39 years old. And so life, life definitely gave a lot of great things. It took everything, but that's not exclusive to me. You know, you don't, you don't realize that when going through it, but when you look back, it's like, that's no different from what happened to thousands and thousands of people. And just thankfully, uh, being with my father, who is my inspiration uh, in life, hence the book. And I knew that even though I was 39 going on 40, I still had a dream to be a police officer. And things just kind of worked itself out with a lot of, wow, that was a lot of uh, reaching out and, and faith alone to, to drive across the country as I did. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a place to live. I just knew I had to start over. And I was going to start over on my terms in a place I wanted to be doing something I've always wanted to do. And I still remember going to the police academy to take the, the test. There's 330 people there, all of them much younger, <laughs> much younger. The majority of them just back from uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the battlefields in Afghanistan and Iraq. And I'm looking around like, geez, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, this... This is just bizarre. And at the end of the day, there was 33 of us left, uh, which I was one, and came back to St. Ignace, packed up, got the things I needed, paperwork. And the FBI took over at that point, and they were calling our teachers, you know, calling uh, Ms. Shock and, you know, Mr. Doms and all these folks about who is Sean Ravy? What kind of kid was this? What kind of student was this? What kind of person was this? And I had a lot of history in life. So, you know, if I were 20, it would have been much easier, but I was 40 and there was a lot of things to look into and a lot of life to explain. And so that began the process of me becoming what I've always wanted to be at age 40. And that's a, a police officer. I think that's amazing. You know, they didn't call me though, Sean, the FBI. <laughs> I made sure of that. I didn't put you on any reference list whatsoever. I would, I would tell him he was a good baseball player on a bad team. He knew how to pedal a banana bike really well, and he had a, we had a lot of fun together at Sand Bay every day. Uh, that's what I would have told him. Yeah. Yeah, is that enough for you? Yeah, and, and heck, I remember 90% of the times we were the only ones there. We were, yeah. You just I, hung out. I still tell the time, and I don't even know. I probably told you this at the time, but I remember there were two sandbars, maybe three at Sand Bay. And I remember you and I swam out. So the first one everybody went to, but then the second or third one, very few people went out to. And I remember one day we went out to it and it was way over our heads. I mean, heck, we were, we were little peelers back then. And I remember coming back in and I, I don't know what happened. I panicked and I started going under and I thought, I'm dying. I'm going to drown. And for some reason I came back up and I swam in and I don't know, something in that moment clicked in my memory that 
never, you know, be careful, make good rational decisions at times, because I don't think I was quite courageous enough to go as far as we did. I don't think you even noticed. I think you swam in and swam back, but I was in panic mode for a few seconds there. So, um, but I think you would probably would have saved me. You didn't, you weren't wearing a cape yet though. So maybe not. Not yet, but not I, yet. I still would have reached out, done the best I could. <laughs> I know you would have. So I think I know the answer to this question. Who was your greatest inspiration growing up? My dad. Um, you know what he created and where he created and how he created it. Um, my father, Edward Gravy, uh, by the time he was seven years old, he, he could tell any make and model of any car he saw. He was an automotive savant from a very early age. And, and most kids that age, six, seven, eight, nine, their heroes are police officers, firefighters, superheroes. And dad read comic books. But one day in 1949, he went to La Rock's drugstore downtown St. Ignace with a quarter in his hand and to buy comic books and candy. And he saw Motor Trend magazine, volume one, number one, opened it up and read a story about the most radical car customizer who had ever lived and the things he was doing on the California coast. That man's name was George Barris. And dad fell in love with the car culture from there. And later on in life, when it came time to celebrate the bicentennial, 1976, the town of St. Ignace, our little town with 2,000 people and no traffic lights, decided they wanted to have a car show. And so they reached out to the ultimate gearhead, my father, and said, could you put something together? It was supposed to be a one-off thing. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about it is St. Ignace is so remote and far away, even from Detroit, it's five hours, you know, but worlds away from California and that car culture. But such was dad's passion that they expected 50 cars and 136 showed up and people were commenting on how different it was because of where it was. You know, you cross the bridge, you come across this beautiful span of water, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron, you drive downtown St. Ignace, which is right on Lake Huron. And that's the backdrop of this little tiny show that started in 1976. Dad realized quickly that, well, one thing about my dad is if he didn't like something, he changed it. And what he didn't like is when he went to local car shows, all the local guys won, period. Mm-hmm. I mean, one lady got uh, the best in show simply because she ran the concession stand and they wanted to reward her. He, he didn't like that. So what dad did is he decided to make all St. Ignace cars ineligible for awards at his show. The show grew. And by 1980, he had reached out to his his hero in life, Gordon Beerig, one of the greatest designers, the Auburn, Auburn Court and Duesenberg car, to ask him to be his, his first guest of honor. And this is something that wasn't a common thing back then. And what also wasn't a common thing was a car show not being in a parking lot, a fairground, or inside a, an arena or a field. Dad took the show out of those areas and put it right in his town. He made the two a living dynamic with each other. And one day, months after reaching out to Gordon Berry, he got a call at the bank, simply said, hi, yeah, this is Gordon Berry. Tell me about your show. And Gordon agreed to come to be dad's first guest of honor. That led to Zora Arcus Duntoff coming because he was Gordon's neighbor. Zora was the, the preeminent designer of the Corvette. Um, he took it over from Harley Earl and turned it into the most dynamic American muscle car ever. Zora was best friends with Carol Shelby, probably the most iconic um, car guy in the world. Carol Shelby came to be guest of honor at Dad's little show. And yes, ultimately, George Barris himself 
came to St. Ignace, Michigan, and Dad and George Barris rode in the parade together in the George Barris built Batmobile after George signed that Mortar Trend magazine that my father still had. So that's the kind of guy my dad was. He dreamed it. He did it. He was fierce in his work ethic. And he was the biggest fan in the room. And these guys like George Barris and and Carol Shelby alone, my God, the story. And fast forward through the years, the show's in its 46th year. And last year, uh, we have ice cream every Sunday. And we were talking, and my father's very, very ill. Um, he has a lot of cognitive defects. He has heart disease. Um, he has caregivers. My sister has, has kept my father alive the last few years. And uh, John Genza, who goes by Top Hat John, the premier automotive historian in the world, flatly asked Dad, how in the hell did you get Carol Shelby here in this town? And Dad was having a bad day. You know, he wasn't doing well. His movements were off. He was, he was unsteady on his feet. But that lit his fuse, man. He started talking about Carol Shelby and he and the things they did and what happened to him, like getting pulled over by a state trooper as they're in a convertible drinking Budweiser's together. I'd never heard these stories. You know? And just the wildness of the cruise night that you know so well. Mm-hmm. Uh, just it was absolutely chaos out there. And the stories of that night with Carol Shelby and dad and where they went and what they did. I'm like, I haven't heard any of these before. And then it just dawned on me seeing my frail, ill dad. I'm like, well, when he dies, those stories are all going to go away. And it dawned on me, you know what? You need to tell dad's story. And I did. And that's where this book, Rebel Without a Clue, came from. And I called him and said, this is what we're going to do. I gave him homework. You know, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to do. And it took me almost a year. Uh, but the goal was to release it during this year's show, and we did that. And we had a sold-out book signing event, um, four and a half hours of dad living his best life. People are reading this book and getting with me. I mean, automotive guys, hardcore guys with tears in their eyes, saying this is the single greatest book on automotive history I have ever read. I mean, it's beautiful. And that's what I wanted. You know, I wanted dad. I wanted people to know and see what he had done because my father did something with his life that if you brought my father to Hollywood as a character, they would not believe it. And they would say, no one would believe someone like this could exist, but now it's in a book and the book is doing its fourth week in a row. It's a number one bestseller for new releases in two different categories. The ebook is number one. And it just tells the story uh, of just, you know, dad was a, a bag boy at a grocery store. You know, my my grandfather was the the president of the school board and signed his diploma. So, you know, he wouldn't be embarrassed. His only son flunked out of high school. And he's achieved something that, yeah. And and he made, and the greatest quote my dad ever, he gave me through this book. So, you know, who would dream of ever putting a car show in our hometown and having it turn out like this? I mean, there's magazines in France calling it the greatest car show in the world. Uh, Street Rider Australia said this is the single greatest automotive run in history. And I asked Dad, why did you, how did this happen, essentially? And he said, I had too many heroes in my life. Carol Shelby, Bill Mitchell, Zora Duntoff, Gordon Beard, all the, George Bird, all these guys. There was no way in my lifetime I would ever be able to meet all of them. So what I wanted to do, was create a car show experience that would make all of them 
want to come here and meet me. And that's exactly what I did. It just gave me chills, you know? It gives me chills, too. Sean, so the the most... Tell us where the growth of the car show. It started up with 136 cars showing up in 1976. Expected 50, but 136 showed up. Where has it gone since then? Can you please tell the audience? Oh my gosh! In the mid to late 80s, we were having 4,000 show cars in town, and we topped out at over 100,000 people coming to that little tiny town. Uh, it was covered by seven different countries' automotive press. Um, Dad was inducted in the Who's Who Worldwide Automotive. Um, he was a sought-after speaker around the country going to um, the Oakland Roadster Show, which is the single most uh, prestigious show in the world and being recognized from the stage in California. California guys giving my father a award, saying, you have completely redefined the automotive culture. That shifted the paradigm in how car shows um, were presented. It went from a one day in a dusty field to an experience to include the greatest parade of automo- automobiles in the state. Um, the concert series that he put together, he had 16 of the top 200 billboard artists of the 60s performing LaSalle High School stage. You know, he had uh, the legendary Dick Ray Memorial Truck Show. That's the third biggest truck show in the world that he developed. That's going on his 26th year. And that just consistently changed when things changed he changed with it and outdid himself again to create uh, the greatest experience and collection of car shows that anyone has ever seen anywhere and that's just not me saying it that is automotive historian saying this is a only in america type situation and ed ravey is one of the biggest automotive heroes in the world for what he was able to accomplish and continue to do. He sold the show after 40 years. Um, his health was bad then, um, but the show's doing well still. Um, it's still doing well, but he created a juggernaut and he created something that could never be duplicated and changed how everyone looked at presenting their car shows, which is the paradigm shift we all hope we can create in life. Well, you know, I can honestly attest to that, to the bamboo pack. When I've had the, the pleasure of traveling the, the country and speaking and working with clients, I have I couldn't count how many times when somebody would ask me from the audience or from a group of people I was working with, where are you from originally? And I would tell them St. Ignace, Michigan. And it was inevitable. Somebody would say, that's where the car show is. And I'd say, yep, that's where the car show is. I mean, it's and I remember, Sean, when I was a, a bartender at the Dockside restaurant, up, up on uh, North State Street in sending us, obviously in college, that I remember meeting a lot of the people who came in. I remember one guy, Big Daddy Don Garlitz. Is that somebody that sounds... Don Garlitz, the yeah. ultimate drag racer. Yeah, yeah, and then I remember meeting a, a woman, Lynn, 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 Linda... Linda Vaughn. Linda Vaughn, yes. I remember Linda Vaughn. And I still see on some of the face, uh, Facebook posts, I think she still makes appearances at times, or has in, not, in the not-so-distant past. Yeah, she was here this year. Oh, she was. Okay, okay. Yeah. My uh, production company, uh, Nostalgia Productions, sponsored her trip into San Ignis because this was to honor my father. And he's, I asked him, what do you want at the show? And he said, Linda Vaughn and the 1904 Peerless um, car made famous by Burton Upjohn. And I got them both for him. Oh, I love it. That's, that's such a cool thing. So for the Bamboo Pack, please w- go out there on Amazon. I just ordered mine as we were, Sean and I were talking earlier. Rebel Without a Clue. The true story of Edward Ravy by Sean Ravy. It's on Amazon and it's it's uh, it's rising 
like a rocket. So get on there. When you look at the the photo of this podcast, you'll see a copy of the book, the print uh, next to my, or the front page of the book next to my picture. So feel free to get on there and order this book. Reading the reviews, they're not just five-star, they're all five-star, but the things people are saying are overwhelmingly positive and people are thriving on this book. So get out there and buy it and learn a little bit about Ed Ravy and really learning about dreaming something, doing something, and changing it when you don't like it. I mean, that's a, that, that's an incredible metaphor for how we should be living our lives as a whole. Dream it, do it, and change what you don't like. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for bringing your father and his uh, history and his, his experiences and his, uh, his gifts to the car world and the world as a whole, Sean. That's good stuff. I appreciate that. We're looking to get John Schneider to play dad in the movie, so I'm looking on that right now. <laughs> Is that Luke or Bo Duke? That's Bo. Bo, okay. He was my favorite. Yeah. The other one bothered yeah, me a little bit for some. Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean, over the past, I know we've had this quote uh, COVID and pandemic, and I don't like to bring that up too much because hopefully we're, we're that's in our rear view mirror for the most part. But during the course of that, what were the, what was the greatest learning you experienced? Well, it forced me to change my paradigm um, because my foundation, and we'll get into the origin of that in a moment. My foundation thrived on, when I started my foundation, I wanted to change how charity worked because I didn't like it. I didn't like the boardrooms. I didn't like not knowing where the money went. And I saw the abuses of the money uh, that I raised and gave to people and what they did with it. It wasn't what they were supposed to. But I made my mark with huge public events. I mean, September 2019, we had an event um, in, a, in a mall out here in Arizona. We drew uh, 3,500 people. Um, the parking lot was jammed. It was a three-hour event with 50 costume superheroes. Um, and at the same time, through Tra uh, Tracy Labor Wilson, um, who has taken uh, the mantle of being my Michigan uh, chairperson to run my foundation in Michigan, had an event happen at the same time. And so huge event there, huge event here. We raised $25,000. It was phenomenal. The energy was incredible. But clearly going forward, we couldn't do that anymore. Um, I would also take my superheroes to uh, to Walmart and Target and the five below superstores uh, with our advocacy centers and shop for their wish list so they can have give these abused children and victims what they needed to do. So I had to change how I worked. I, I couldn't do public events anymore. So I had to shift my own paradigm and say, there's got to be a different way of doing this. And my way of doing it led me to be nominated for ingenuity through fundraising during the pandemic by a, a very large uh, organization. Uh, you know, I was nominated al along with, uh, you know, children's charities that we heard, of, you know, you'd hear of and just the big boys on the block and, and just little me, you know, how did you manage to raise nearly as much money as it did the year previous? It's because I had to change how I approached it. And I've kept that, I've kept that, that spirit with me now and it showed me that not only can i work smarter and more streamlined but i can have the same result and so it was tough we survived it many didn't um sadly and but we did and we were able to to springboard from that to really get on the national radar with some very large companies who are now um, uh, making grants to us uh, to help in our mission so it, it was bad it changed our country. It shut down our world, but I had to think my way through it and to continue to be successful. And I was able to do that. thankfully. Okay. 
That's a great lesson for all of us, I think, right there. And I think where you got that clearly came from your father. When you said your father didn't like something the way it was done, he just changed it. He didn't get stuck in his old paradigms. He changed his paradigm. And of course, when the COVID hit and you were working with your foundation, that just came naturally to you. Or maybe some of these bigger boys and, and girls out there and the companies and the foundations, they weren't quite as adept at change, maybe a little more change averse than you were. So they came, you stepped forward and they stayed back. So well done, my friend. Well done Thank you. for a great cause too. I can't wait till you get to talk about that. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm going to ask you the question and you can go as deep with this as you want, Sean, or you can, you can, you can claim, or you can say, I'm not going to answer it. But the question I like to ask is what is the most difficult thing you have gone through in your 50 some years of existence on this earth? Well, that would be last year. And, you know, People don't know me. They don't. They can't see the person on the other end of the phone. You do. I mean, I'm I'm a large man. You know, I'm a six two, about two hundred and twenty pounds. I, I'm a police officer. I have a foundation that uses superheroes um, to empower abuse kids. And I'm going to tell you how this foundation started before I answer your question because I need to give it this backstory. Fair enough. I was interviewing a, a, a critically abused boy. Um, he was so afraid, he fetaled up in the chair. You know, he had his arms around his knees and his head buried in his knees. He wouldn't answer me. He wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't look at me because a man beat him half to death. And he was sitting in a room with a man. And when you interview children, critically abused children like this, it's not a fishing expedition. They have to tell you the narrative. They have to tell you what happened. And we achieve that through open-ended questions. Not, I heard somebody beat you nearly to death. Why don't you tell me? No, you can't, you can't plant that seed. They have to tell you that happened. And it's a, a highly specialty, highly trained thing. And th these are where the special victims units come in, the training we have um, to be able to talk to these children. And I was getting nowhere. And generally speaking, we have a time limit. When we have children of certain ages that you can't continue to talk to them because if they do inevitably disclose, then the defense attorney is going to say, well, what did you expect? You wouldn't leave them alone. So I knew I was running out of time and I closed my eyes. And I remember what made me feel strong when I was a child. And that was a superhero, a Spider-Man in my case. So I popped my eyes open and I looked at him. I'm like, hey, do you like superheroes? And Brian, that child changed instantly. His head popped up, his eyes went wide, and he said, Iron Man. I'm like, well, tell me why you like Iron Man. And he did. Now he's out of the chair, running around, you know, doing the Iron Man hand gauntlet explosions. He's jumping up and down, and we're talking about the new Avengers 2 movie. Ant-Man had just come out. And I told him I love Spider-Man. And now instead of seeing a potential adversary, he saw a friend who also loves superheroes. So I told him, man, little buddy, thank you so much for telling me all that. But, you know, I heard something might have happened to you. And he said, yeah, Michael, why don't you be a good little superhero and tell me all about it? And he did. And we were able to make an arrest from that. Um, he took a plea of 18 years in prison. But on the way out, I was looking for anything that had Iron Man on it and couldn't find it because I had a moment of empowerment. That child was 
on a cloud. He was no longer thinking how scared he was. He was no longer hurting. He wanted to continue to think he was a superhero. And had I was put an Iron Man action figure in that boy's hand, he would have taken that home with him. And that's how my foundation started. I immediately went to my boss and said, I want to do a donation drive to get superhero action figures and T-shirts into this center to give to these kids. And that's how it started in 2015. And since then, I've grown to um, supporting 10 child crisis centers, um, eight in Arizona, three, uh, two in Michigan. We provide everything a victim child needs. We've expanded into domestic violence and sexual assault victims. Uh, we use superhero mythology to do that. We're the largest charity of our kind. I own two federal trademarks that might put on the Cape Cosplay team is unique and that everyone has to go, undergo training for adverse childhood experiences. They have to be fingerprint, background check, meet the uh, special victims unit teams and know exactly what it is we're doing. And it has taken on a life of its own. Um, we're nearing giving away almost a half a million dollars. Um, we'll go over that mark this year. But great story. I mean, just raw and emotional. And it started for the right reasons. But I never told people. I, I left a part of that story out. And I never talked about the rest of the story until last year. Okay. Because... I had come to a point in my own life that I had been diagnosed with uh, PTSD because you cannot work with burned, beaten, and raped children for six years. You cannot see the things a police officer sees without having it impact you dreadfully emotionally. I was diagnosed depressed, um, anxiety. My life had changed. I had become very dark inside and I told that story I just told you to a Mayo Clinic psychologist, psychiatrist. And it was hard for me to, to push out what I'm going to push out now because it's the first time I've ever talked about it. I wrote about this in chapter 24 of the book, which why the book is doing so well, I think it might have something to do with this chapter. When I was talking to that little boy and I was at loggerhead, and I couldn't get through to him. When I closed my eyes, yes, I did remember Spider-Man, but I also remembered hiding in my closet from my mother, who was beating on the door, trying to drag me out and beat me. I was abused for years physically. Um, my mother, God bless her, had a break from reality. She was a wonderful mom before that happened in 1978. Beautiful woman, tall, brunette, high cheekbones, funny. And that, that mom went away. And that mom that I grew up with was a mom who heard things, who imagined things. And I was the source of her anxiety. And there wasn't a day I remember from that point on that I wasn't beaten. And it continued up until my mom passed away last year. Um, psychological warfare. Um, I was made to feel that nothing I did was right. Everything I did was wrong. Um, I couldn't please her at all. She told me when I saw her alive, the last time I saw her alive, she told me that she'll never forgive me for not making her a grandmother. Um, 
yelled at me for using the Ron shovel to clear the snow off her walkway because that's what she used to clear dog poop away. And now she, I ruined it and typical selfishness on my part. So my mom spent the, the majority of her life mentally ill and addicted to all the medications they put into her. Um, she died of cancer last year. And to me, it was the second time I lost my mom and I lost, and I, I waited all those years for that mom to come back. The mom who carried me up hills when I hurt myself and taught me how to play baseball and read to me. And I always wanted her to come back. And I carried this with me my whole life. You know, people say, you, why are you depressed? Look at you. Look at what you've done. Look at the awards you have. Look at all the acclaim you've gotten. You're a first time author at 55. And I stopped being afraid when I was 54 years old, um, physically. And, and, you know, looking back when people start reading this and finding this out, they're going to say that, yes, he, he shows every sign of profound child abuse. He has GI problems. He has uh, a sick stomach. He's allergic to foods. He has night terrors. All of these things, they were there. But you can't believe by looking at the person and saying, you? No. And people don't mean to be dismissive of you. They just can't believe it could happen because you've done all these things. My shrink told me that you had every marker for childhood suicide. Jack Martin, you know Jack, sending his boy. He, ed- he was the editor of my book. I mean, he read that chapter. He, he was devastated. He told me you had every marker for teenage suicide. You had, because dad was doing a show. I was being abused at home. I had no faith, which I still don't. Um, faith is a gift I've yet to receive. But I did tell Jack, who's very Christian, very, um, very strong in his walk, in his belief. You know, I have met the devil. When I sat across the table from a man who would burn a child and rape a child and beat a child to death. So I know there has to be a God because duality is everything in our lives. But the reason that Put on the Cape started is... I wanted to be there for that boy because no one was there for me. And that's how it continued. And that's why I do what I do. That's why I fiercely defend him. When people, when you talk to people about me and my grasp on this foundation, they have a very different opinion about me. Um, This is mine because it's me. And we're doing this because this is what I wanted someone to do for me. And I've gotten those responses from people through the years. People who said, no one was there for me. Here's here's all I can spare. Would you please make sure this gets to a kid? And so that was inside of me forever. It changed my life, um, my relationships. I moved 19 times in 21 years, job after job. I had no confidence. I had no anything, but I knew life had to be better. It had to be right. Mm -hmm. And the only difference is, you know, when I was 39 and homeless, I was in my garage crying that dad's house, living back with your father. When you're 39, the room you grew up in as a teenager is pretty hard to take when you've lost everything. So you hear a lot of people say, don't quit. Well, I'm going to contradict that but with a caveat, my dad came out 
and saw me sitting there crying. And he said, I'm giving you permission for the next 15 minutes to quit. Break something. Puke. Scream, bang your head against the wall. At the end of those 15 minutes, we're starting again. You're coming in the house and we're going to figure this out. So if you want to quit and have a pity party, I think it's important because you're validating your own feelings. But then once you do do that, you realize that this isn't the end of me. This is just the start of something awesome. But I didn't know that at the time. I broke out in shingles from stress. I'd lost 30 pounds. I didn't know what end was up. And I was a 40-year-old guy driving across the country to be a cop in the fifth largest city in the country. (laughs) But I found myself, finally. (laughs) I was able to find something I loved to do. And I look back now 15 years later and I see the things that I've accomplished. It's because I stopped being so afraid. I did thing like writing this book, you know how hard it was to write chapter 24. I can well imagine. I, I literally had a mental breakdown writing it. I was back and forth with Jack. I don't want to, I don't know if I want this chapter in the book. I don't know. And he said, it's gotta be in the book. <laughs> it's it's gotta be in the book. You gotta put this in the book because someone needs to read it. And so that's what I want. And here's how I view life, Brian. I think you probably do too. I think everyone's seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. The end of that movie, the older Ryan is in Normandy at the grave of Captain Hiller and breaks down and cries. His wife runs to him and he looks at her and says, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. When I'm gone, I want people to stand by my headstone and say, I'm better because that man lived. And I couldn't do that by quitting. I couldn't do that by not being able to deal with something I'm not alone with. This isn't exclusive. My story is not exclusive at all. There's many people living in quiet desperation right now. Maybe someone's listening to this right now. Because people look at me and say, what do you got to worry about? You're Superman. Everyone loves you. I mean, look at all your accomplishments. I hated myself. Absolutely, <laughs> the self-loathing was incredible, and I'm just—I'm not afraid anymore. And so, this is just the beginning of my next chapter in my life, which is going to be great. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for the courage and the transparency you just brought to the audience and to me, Sean. You know, growing up with you in the baseball days and the, you know, <laughs> pedaling to Sand Bay and swimming and laughing and playing catch on the beaches. I always knew there was something special in you. Those memories are some of the few fond childhood memories that have stayed with me for the past 40, 50 years of my life. And I can honestly say, say you, my friend, are not a good man. You are a great man. And I'm a better man because you have lived. Thank you. And I know there wasn't anyone there for you when you were younger, but you've got a lot of people there for you and with you now. And we're all in your corner cheering, and we're proud to know you as the man you are today and the boy who fought those battles when you did. Thank you for that transparency and courage. It wasn't easy. Because it's a weak, people see it as a weakness, but it isn't. Not at all. It's a strength. 
and I tell you, I, I can't even tell you the percentage of your audience who are hiding this inside of them too. You can do it, man. You can reach out, reach out, talk to somebody. That's the only way you're ever going to stop hating yourself. Sean, did you ever think that those two boys peddling to Sam Bay and laughing, number one, were both fighting the same demon inside at the same time and didn't even, the other one didn't even know it. And that 45 <laughs> years later, we'd be sitting here talking, me from the upper part of the great state of Michigan, you in the beautiful state of Arizona, we would be talking on the Bamboo Lab podcast about this? No, no. And maybe that's why we were constantly gravitating toward the other. Yes, I agree. I mean, I, I, no one else came with us, Brian. It was just us. It was just us. Was just us. We'd, <laughs> we'd get up in the morning, we would call each other, and we'd have breakfast, and or maybe sometimes a little bit later, a lunch, we'd let's meet, we'd meet it kind of by, you'd come pedaling to my, uh, towards my house, we'd pedal down the Sand Bay, down the point, uh, the uh, Bay Shore, no, what's the name of the street? Uh, point LaBarbe? Point LaBarbe. We'd pedal down that road, that gravel road, dust kicking everywhere, mosquitoes everywhere, geese and ducks and seagulls everywhere. And we did it every day full of laughter. And then we'd get done, go break the baseball practice or a game and lose. And then we'd do it again the next day. <laughs> <laughs> we lost so poorly. Mercy rule. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, we weren't. It, it, it's just a testament to your, I didn't know, you didn't know, but here the both of us were. Exactly. And here we are today. We, we were safe. We knew we were safe. And we lived our best life that we could. Exactly. At that point, and we're still doing it, and we never still do, and that's why this Pop Bamboo Lab podcast is really designed, created, a broadcast for all the thrivers, strivers, and survivors out there. And you and I are a testament to all three of those. Yeah, and you know, fifty-five first-time author. I've already got uh, my next book is already storyboarded, ready to go. My third book is in the works, and I've got a trilogy of my um, police stories ready to drop as soon as I retire. And so. I, I wanted to ask you, Sean, with that, I know we're going over, but I'm, I'm okay with that. And I'm sure my audience would be more than happy to hear this or to, to know that we're going a little longer. You know, with you working in a special victims unit, working with children who were, you know, abused and raped and, and I mean, tortured. How do you deal with that? The thing is, I didn't. And it cost me. Um, I became very dark. I broke. Um, there's actually the story of that is in the book in chapter 24, I write about my trip down the rabbit hole and I was the life of the party. I mean, I was the, the fun guy to work with. I, you know, hard charger, funny, had a great time, but I, I became so different to the point I had to be removed from the room before I took a punch at a suspect. I, I'd gotten that dark and disgusted. Um, by and they the city offers but the last thing you want to do as a police officer is tell the city for whom you're employed that i'm weak you don't want to do that and our culture and police uh is very alpha we don't want to admit we have a problem i didn't and it cost me um it led to me being suspended uh removed from the unit um for behaviors that were completely ridiculous um i and it takes you apart. It's a, it's PTSD by a thousand cuts. And, you know, I still remember holding that 18 month old's hand 
as she was on life support telling her I was going to do everything I could to get justice and find the person that did this to her. She died three days later and it took me a year, but I got that person. And and, uh, the worst case I ever worked when I finally was able to get that guy um, is when things started spiraling out of control for me and I needed to step away. And, and again, it's a good story because I found a better place and a better self. And that's where this foundation came from. That is taking, is taking Arizona by storm. It's national. I've got NASCAR putting my logo on their cars, you know, General Mills and, and Charles Schwab and all these amazing companies uh, providing grants for my work. Uh, we got gifted an office last year, community pay to wrap my, my van and a superhero motif. It's because I do what I say I'm going to do. And I give money live on Facebook that here's the money you guys donated. It's going right to these people <laughs> right, right here. Direct. And cause I know what they need. Cause I was there and I, I love that about it because these guys then I, I can see the signs in them that people saw in me and said, buddy, I think it's time to step away from this. Well, here's someone to talk to. <laughs> I guess Sean, even Superman has his kryptonite. Of course. Sure. Of course. Uh, the Superman always finds the kryptonite, though, because he's kind of stubborn like most of us are. Well, when you're out there exploring in life and, and uh, stressing and stretching and, and moving forward and advancing and growing and trying to change the world, you're going to stumble into some kryptonite. There's no doubt. Well, you have to. And you can't be afraid of it because it's going to happen. It's how you respond to it. It's cliche. But you, you have choices. You can stop permanently. Or you can say, this is going to make me better. And I've chosen all these years with all of that inside of me to try to continually make myself better. And I hope someone sees that and hears that and does the same thing. We do and we will. So looking at your foundation, can you tell us uh, how my audience can look into the organization, can donate? Where can they find it? Put on the Cape Foundation. Where can they go? Put on the Cape.org. And we're also on Facebook, Put On The Cape. We have professional costume superheroes, actors and actresses. We hold events, 5Ks, golf tournaments, car shows, surprisingly. Um, And superhero shopping sprees. We run events all the year around and uh, raise hundreds of thousands of dollars and give it all away. So putonthecape.org. You can look, my audience, look it up. Please consider contributing finding a way maybe to help but this is a cause that sean has definitely created from scratch and it's 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 something else i'm a part of a group he facetime he he uh uh tags every time he puts something on facebook and i'm always so happy to see this organization growing and especially because it's going directly to the safety really and probably to to many degrees to the savior of these young abused children the disenfranchised Please, please, by all means, look it up, follow him on Facebook, put on the cape.org. Thank you, Sean, for what you're doing. Thanks, Brian. What's next for you? Well, I'm working on the children's book. Uh-huh. We're going to publish that in September. I just had a hip replaced, so I'm kind of down and out. I'm a school resource officer now, which I will do until I retire. Um, but our super, eighth superhero, September Spectacular, is coming up in September. So I tell people it takes about $10 to take care of the needs of one child. 
So even if you say I only have 50 bucks, well, you know what? You just help five kids have something to eat, get something to drink, get a clean pair of underwear and get a toy. And that's, that's how we do that. So that's coming up. So, uh, anything donated goes right to my centers. And, uh, so yeah, I've got a lot of plans going forward. Um, I'm not afraid anymore. Um, so I'm going to take a lot more chances. Um, just try to keep changing the world, be that light that people want to gravitate toward and reach out to me. People have, when they read the book, they've reached out to me and say, I'm getting help for the first time in my life. And that's the greatest compliment you can ever pay to me. Amen. And going back to that little boy who you talked to that was so critically abused, I would think for the rest of his life, you are always going to be his Iron Man. I hope so. I know I so. I know so. Awesome. <laughs> wow. I, I, okay. Before we sign off with Sean, I just want to recap some of the things that I learned here today. And quite frankly, after a friendship of 45 years, I learned things today in our pre-call before the, the broadcast, as well as during the broadcast of today's episode, things that I never knew. And it's elevated Sean in my eyes and in my heart to a whole new level. So some of the things I really like that Sean said that I pulled out were don't put time limits on life or a time frame on life. I mean, he changed his life at age 40, being downtrodden, living in his, in his original bedroom with his father, you know, having a breakdown in the, in the garage crying one night and that his dad picked him up. And he said, basically from there, he got in his Jeep, drove to Arizona, lived for three weeks, found an apartment, became a police officer at a pretty ripe old age. You know, starting off with 330 people and 33 left. I mean, 33 left after that training or that first day or for whatever process it was. And then he became not only a police officer, but a highly effective police officer going in and working in the most emotionally challenging career I could imagine. He's dealing with children who are abused, raped, beaten, tortured, and becoming their Superman and Iron Man. He did that at the age of 40. Became a best-selling author at age 55 and is now writing his next book, a children's book that will be out in September, and we'll be looking for that. And what I liked about what he said was he started over in life. And how many of you right now are looking at not liking exactly where you are, your place in the circle? You can still start over. But do like Sean said. Start over on your terms. This is your opportunity. Every day you have one last opportunity to change your life and live on your terms. Today's your day. And he changed his paradigm when that whole COVID hit and he had to learn how to market his foundation to raise funds to continue to help these downtrodden and disenfranchised children. Instead of trying to go the old route, he stopped, he self-reflected and he paradigm shift to start an entirely new process that now other organizations are starting to follow. And he stopped being afraid. He stopped being afraid after all these decades of being afraid. That little boy in him finally is beginning to run through the raindrops. And it couldn't happen to a better man. Sean, you're my friend. You're my brother. And I love you. Love you too, friend. We've been through life together, haven't we? We have. And I am extremely extremely proud of the man you've become and the little boy you were. Had I known all those years and had you known my story all those years, 
nothing would have changed. We would have still gone to baseball practice and lost every game. We still would have run to Sand Bay on, our dirty, or on a dirty, dusty road with our banana bikes and swam all day, and we still would have laughed and giggled and thrown the baseball on the beach. Yep. And maybe that's part of what got us through it. It did. I guarantee it did. And we're still laughing. Just our beach and our trip to Sand Bay in life has just gotten a lot bigger. Everyone needs a sand bay. Everyone needs a sand bay. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. It was an honor to have you on the Bamboo Lab podcast. And I can tell right now, and I'm not sure how many episodes we've done so far, but maybe this is number 30. I can tell that this one's going to be in a massive hit across the, the our beautiful state. Probably going to be a big hit in sending this Michigan, beautiful hometown. And a special thanks to Jack Martin. He's an amazing man. And really to propagate and push you to to uh, make sure you publish Chapter 24, I think that right there is going to save so many lives across the country and across the five continents we are now being broadcast and followed on. So I thank you, my friend. I appreciated every single minute with you today. That was awesome. I really did too, Brian. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So Bamboo Pack, until we meet again, just remember this. Heroes don't always wear capes but sometimes they still do. And we have one of those on there today. All right, everyone, please. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Bamboo Lab podcast and our amazing guest, Sean Ravy today. Please get out there and follow us on Spotify, Amazon Music, Amazon Podcast, iHeartRadio. I think we're on 32 platforms. It's easy to find us, the Bamboo Lab podcast. Get out there, follow us, rate us, and share us with three people. Today's message was too, too powerful not to share. In the meantime, get out there and sculpt your life and sculpt it boldly. Strive to be your best every day. Show love and respect for all those around you and live consciously. All right, we're going to sign off. In the meantime, God bless you. God bless your friends and family. And by all means, God bless those amazing dreams you carry.